Hello and welcome to another episode of Imagine That, a podcast for astrology and archetypes. This is episode 8, Saturn and Soul, and I'm your host, Sean Nygaard. Now, the doorway we will open to get into this episode harkens back to last summer, when Venus was retrograde in Leo, and I had mentioned the movie Ratatouille, because Ratatouille premiered in 2007 when Venus was in Leo, and the movie stars that wonderfully Venusian rat Remy with his highly developed sense of smell and taste. Remember, Venus rules these senses. While Remy is in a house, smelling around for food, on the television, he happens to hear his hero, Chef Gusteau, tell everyone, in order to be a chef, you must be imaginative, strong-hearted, you must try things that may not work, and you must not let anyone define your limits because of where you come from. Your only limit is your soul. And with that line, your only limit is your soul. Off we go. Hello and welcome once again to Imagine That, a podcast for astrology and archetypes. I'm your host, Sean Nygaard. You can find me on the web at imagineastrology.com. This is episode eight, Saturn and Soul. We're going to look at Saturn and weave him into winter solstice reflections of 2023 given that when the sun moves into Capricorn on the winter solstice, the sun enters Saturn's sign. Now, all in all, putting this episode together, looking back, it would have been much easier, instead of calling it Saturn and Soul, if I had just called it Saturn and Ego, it probably would have come together much more easily. But before getting to Saturn, I have a couple of announcements. The first is that I have a couple of new short articles published. You can find them on astro.com. The first is Tina Turner, Thunder and Lightning, which is a written counterpart to my podcast episode of the same name. It's not a transcript, but it's based on the episode. And the other article is Olga Tokarchuk, Living in Between, where I take a look at the chart of the Nobel Laureate. Now, these articles were originally published in The Evolving Astrologer, which is the astrology magazine published by OPA, the Organization for Professional Astrology. The magazine has a new publications director, my friend Giulio Pellegrini. Giulio has a great aesthetic eye for putting things together, a great eye for design. 
and his first issue came out around the autumnal equinox with the topic of relationships. But he wanted to include a section inspired by the talk of the town section of the New Yorker. It's a section looking at relevant items from the culture from an astrological perspective. And that's where you'll find my two articles. I'll include a link to the magazine in the notes for this show. And like I said, you can find both articles on astro.com. And I want to give a shout out to Laura Campagna, the wonderful astrologer who is the managing editor who helped me spiff up both articles and get them into shape for publication. Thank you, Laura and Julio. The other announcement is that MISPA is back. Now, maybe you didn't know that MISPA was quiet for a while, and maybe you don't even know what MISPA is. But it's really good for the astrological world to know about MISPA, which is the Mercury Internet School of Psychological Astrology. It's on the web at mercuryinternetschool.com. MISPA was started by John Green, a graduate of the Center for Psychological Astrology, which was, of course, started by Liz Green. No relation between John Green and Liz Green, different spellings of the last name. But Liz gave John her blessing to further the work of the Center for Psychological Astrology through the Mercury Internet School of Psychological Astrology, which, as the name suggests, is an online school. It's based in London, but has students from around the world. MISPA was on hiatus for about a year, but it's back now in full swing, and that means I'm teaching webinars again. So in November, I taught a webinar called Another Look at Chiron and the Archetypal Wound. The webinar is for rent on the MISPA website, and again, I'll include that link in the show notes. It's worth checking out if you're interested in the topic of Chiron, the wounded healer. And I look at Chiron from the backdrop of something Carl Jung said late in his life, when he said the decisive question for man is, is he related to something infinite or not? That is the telling question of life. Only if we know that the thing which truly matters is the infinite can we avoid fixing our interest upon futilities and upon all kinds of goals which are not of real importance. Now, Carl Jung was born with Chiron in Aries, which is where Chiron currently is in the sky, and Chiron is also in Aries in the chart for the United States. So I spent some time looking at that in the webinar. And again, that is for rent on the MISPA website. Coming up in February, I'll be presenting a short webinar called Opening the Red Book, which will be like an introductory guide if Jung's Red Book is something that interests you. It can be an intimidating book to approach, let alone read. So I'll be talking about the context in which Jung wrote the Red Book, its place in the history of psychology, and importantly, its connections with astrology. Because the book is full of Jung working with the astrology of his own chart. So if you're interested in the Red Book but don't know where to start, this webinar can help with that. Again, that's coming up in February. 
So what's in store for this episode? First up, we'll look at Saturn as the Lord of Darkness. Then we'll have some reflections on Saturn in Pisces, the sign Saturn is currently moving through, and I'll mix in some cultural observations about Saturn in general. Then we'll have an excerpt from one of my favorite short stories, and then Saturn's move into the psychological era. Then we'll have a little poetry by romantic poet John Keats and his description of Saturn, followed by a smattering of Saturn tidbits, and we'll conclude with the golden years. Now, we are in deep autumn in the Northern Hemisphere, and the days keep getting darker. We are in Saturnian territory. I call it Saturnian because in tradition, Saturn was the lord of darkness. While that makes him sound like Darth Vader, it's more that that's literally what happens at this time of year. It gets darker and darker and darker until we have the winter solstice, the longest, darkest night of the year. Now, if we step back, Saturn is exalted in the sign of Libra, the start of the autumnal equinox. Saturn rules the sign of Capricorn, the start of the winter solstice. And Saturn rules Aquarius. So Saturn is strong at this time of year. And even though when we get to Aquarius, the light is returning slowly but surely. I want to bring in here something said by the Sibyl in Virgil's Aeneid as Aeneas is entering the underworld. Now here, the underworld is a metaphor for heading into the darkness, heading down deeper to that winter solstice point, the deepest point. The Sibyl says, The descent to the underworld is easy. Night and day, the gates of shadowy death stand open wide. But to retrace your steps, to climb back to the upper air, there the struggle, there the labor lies. In other words, it's hard work. And this is all symbolized in astrology so beautifully. For when the sun enters Capricorn and sits at that deepest point, it's also the point where the light starts to return, but it's an upward climb. So it takes effort and nothing is guaranteed. And this notion of Saturn and darkness comes also from Saturn and Capricorn naturally sitting opposite from the moon in Cancer, the sign of the summer solstice, the period of the longest daylight. And we have Saturn in Aquarius sitting opposite the sun in Leo, again summertime. So Saturn sits naturally opposite to the luminaries, to the light. Now, one of the things that I've been up to over the last few months is reading about five books at a time. And I doubt that I'm the only person who does that, where I read a little bit of this one, and then I read a little bit of that one, and then another one, and then another one, and somehow things relate in interesting ways. But at some point, like in a marathon, one of the books will break out into the lead. And then I'll focus on that one book until I'm done. And in this case, that book was Demetra George's 
Ancient Astrology in Theory and Practice, Volume 1. It's a brilliant book. It's almost 600 pages with a small font and very thin pages. And Demetra George, as most people know, has a genius for teaching. She's just an extraordinary teacher. And this book is so thorough. I loved it. I'm still a modern astrologer, but I love this book. And in it, what she says about Saturn, if we continue with this theme of darkness, Demetra says something, and I quote directly, Saturn was associated with the destructive life force in nature due to its excessive cold, moderately dry, and constricting qualities. End quote. This is why Saturn is known as a malefic in traditional astrology. But really, if we look at those qualities, the destructive life force in nature due to its excessive cold, moderately dry, and constricting qualities, this sounds a lot like winter, doesn't it? And I bring this in to move Saturn away from Darth Vader and recognize that winter is part of the natural cycle of the seasons. And living in Minneapolis, I know a thing or two about excessive cold, moderately dry, and constricting qualities. And I don't necessarily think of winter as malefic. And it helps me understand these qualities of Saturn fitting into something as part of the natural archetypal cycle of life. Autumn in Minneapolis is where the weather starts to change. Things start to get cooler. You know, walking downtown in the summer, down the main street, Nicollet Mall, where the Mary Tyler Moore statue is, you can see all the restaurants with the chairs and tables outside on the mall. And as we get deeper into autumn, everything starts to move inside. That's part of the constricting qualities. You just don't do the same kinds of things in winter as you do in summer. Things begin to move inward. Elsewhere in traditional astrology, I find this list of Saturnian qualities, going back to the Lord of Darkness, sorrow, misery, long-lasting punishment, grief, captivities, mishaps, slander, disrepute, trouble, and very old persons. And of course, some of these qualities draw out the unpleasantness of Saturn, and some of them we'll touch on as we move through the episode. So hopefully they'll fall into place. Now, other things associated with Saturn is that Saturn is the realist, or so-called realist. Saturn is the conservative. Saturn is the cautious one. Super familiar key words include limits and boundaries. But psychologically, we can bring in feeling inadequate, feelings of inadequacy, because Saturn represents places where we feel limited. And if we sit in that place where we feel limited, it can bring about all kinds of fears and anxieties. Saturn is also time, which is a limit. If you look at calendars and schedules, that becomes pretty clear. Saturn is structures, not just buildings and tables and walls, but skin and bones in the human body. 
going further, Saturn is the dictator. In the Picatrix, Saturn is known as the source of the retentive virtue, which I can then, of course, connect to the fact that Saturn rules constipation when stuff stops moving through the system. And of course, Saturn is discipline and rules. Now, importantly, Saturn is slow. Now, this signification comes about quite literally because Saturn takes 29 years to orbit the sun, the famous Saturn return. And because Saturn was the furthest out planet in the ancient world, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto had not been discovered yet. Saturn was the slowest, which is to say Saturnine things take time. It's one of the things I've been pondering most lately is how we experience things through the process of time. If we start putting all of these pieces together, I think this is why Hillman considered Saturn the psychological planet, the most complex of them all, who's a very complicated mythic figure. Now, I love a good sentence that captures the essence of something. And going back to Demetra's book, She says, the nature of Saturn is to endure. And when I hear that word endure, it opens up a spectrum where on the one hand, Saturn entered Capricorn at the start of the Great Depression in the 1930s in the United States. This was also the start of the Dust Bowl. And during the times when the Depression was at its worst and the Dust Bowl was in full swing, It was like the most that people could do was to endure and simply try to make it through. And if you want to read an extraordinary book about that time, it's a beautiful book. It's called The Worst Hard Time. Just a breathtaking time, literally. But endure also has this quality that links back to very old persons And the fact that if we create something that endures, it's often, but not always, something of great quality. Whether it's the tragedies from ancient Greece, operas from Mozart and Rossini, or the works of Shakespeare, all works of extraordinary quality that endure over time. And this makes me think too now of that word, that common word these days, sustainability. If we're going to look at what is sustainable in anything, we want to embrace Saturn. And there's another quality of Saturn connected to that retentive virtue, which links Saturn with memory. When Saturn imagines the future, he looks ahead cautiously and with fear. He's famous for eating his children because he was afraid one of them would overthrow him. But Saturn's imagination of the past, or his memory of the past, is to look back on a golden age, when everything was fabulous. And I have a playlist of Saturn songs. It's my Saturn playlist that I might share when this episode comes out. But one of those songs on the playlist is By the Judds the country music mother-daughter duo who sing in gorgeous harmony. Grandpa, tell me about the good old days. So Saturnian. It's fitting, of course, that Naomi Judd 
was born with the sun at 21 degrees Capricorn. And Winona, her daughter, was born with the moon at 24 degrees Capricorn. So what can suit better than singing in harmony, Grandpa, tell me about the good old days. So now if we take everything that I've just talked about, put it all into a pot and stir it all together, mix it all up, because I don't want to get trapped in key words. I love when I can feel the astrology and I can't always feel key words. But if we put it into a pot and stir it all together, as we move ahead, the question becomes, how do we honor this package of things called Saturn without essentially feeling like we've ended up in prison, another of Saturn's significations? So there isn't necessarily a direct, easy answer to that question. It's more that that gets answered through the course of living a life and living a life in time while knowing that it's not the whole story. Saturn is one archetype of many, one planet of many in the chart. But Saturn is such an important one that that's why I want to spend a whole episode talking about him. So now to go deeper into just a little bit of the process of putting this episode together, I came up with the title first, Saturn and Soul. Wouldn't that be cool? But the soul has an agenda of its own in so many ways. So I'm just thinking Saturn and soul. It's as if the soul in return says, okay, Sean, you want to do Saturn and soul? You have to show me that you mean it. And that's part of reading the books that I ended up reading. And I was also reminded of and had to go deeper into how invested Carl Jung was in the possibilities of an Aquarian age, the age of Aquarius. I don't know if there are astrological ages. I like considering it because there's something awesome about a cosmological organization of things that operates over thousands and thousands and thousands of years and is divided up into 12 zodiac signs. It's just kind of awesome to consider. What if that was true? But when you start really putting all the pieces together, you know, from what people could figure out, we could have started the Aquarian Age centuries ago. It could be many, many, many centuries away. We could be in it right now with it starting imminently, or there may be no such thing. However you look at it, and Jung would refer to the age of Saturn. So it wasn't just the Aquarian age, it was the age of Saturn. Now I could see us in an age of Saturn. Some of that will come out in this episode as I keep going. But with Saturn as the ruler of Aquarius, it kind of doesn't matter if there's an Aquarian age or not, because we're contending with Pluto moving through the sign of Capricorn, now heading into Aquarius. And to really grapple with the complexities of Saturn, which will be raised in this episode, but not solved by any stretch of the imagination. This age of Aquarius, this age of Saturn, was something that captivated Jung. Jung was born with Saturn in Aquarius in the first house, 
with Aquarius rising. So old Saturnus was the ruler of Jung's chart. He was very aware of this. And what interested him is what it means or what it looks like to move into an age of Aquarius if that was the thing. But if we go back to traditional astrology, to the Thema Mundi, the imaginary chart of the world, which is where we get the planetary rulerships from, the Thema Mundi shows us that Saturn is the planet that rules the aspect of the opposition. Or perhaps the better way to say it is that the aspect of the opposition is in the nature of Saturn. The harmonious trine aspect is in the nature of Jupiter. The tense and conflicted square aspect is in the nature of Mars. And the harmonious sextile is in the nature of Venus. But if you move through the history and mythology and archetypal nature of Saturn from the ancient world to now, Saturn was considered the god of opposites or the demon of opposites. This is where Saturn is like the devil's advocate. It's got that 180 degree oppositional nature to it. It's part of Saturn's character. And we have Saturn exalted in the sign of Libra. If we start at zero degrees Aries with the Zodiac, zero degrees Libra is where we first reach a 180 degree oppositional adversarial position. And in the way that Saturn is darkness in opposition to the light, Saturn is exalted in Libra while the sun is in fall in Libra. Saturn is in fall in Aries, where the sun is exalted. And traditional astrology itself is very Saturnian this way, in that it's very concerned with what can be seen and what cannot be seen. Light and dark, cold and warm, wet and dry, etc. Opposites. And it's from his consideration of this in the psyche, psychologically, that Jung spoke often of the importance of holding the tension of the opposites. So if you watch what's happening in the United States politically right now, for example, and elsewhere in the world, but especially in the United States, because the chart of the United States has Saturn in Libra, not to mention Pluto in Capricorn, but the extraordinary divisiveness It's what happens when things become too one-sided and when you have two sides each standing their ground. We are watching Saturnian dynamics through and through. Of course, there's more to it, but I believe that is the essence of what's going on. Quite a while, I've been thinking about the question, why is astrology so popular right now? When I began studying astrology, it wasn't anywhere near as popular as it is today. It's exponentially more popular now. Feels like it's everywhere sometimes. So what could be going on with that? If we imagine Saturn in Pisces being like on a boat, 
setting off onto an ocean, into the unknown, especially in ancient times, without modern technology, how did sailors navigate across the ocean? It was in part by following the skies, by following the stars. And we are at a point in Western culture, but across the globe, we are navigating uncharted waters. We are in new territory. There's an old world, an old way of doing things that is being left behind. And the world that we're heading into is very much a mystery. So perhaps from a soul perspective, it's like astrology has come in to aid us on this journey. Like sailors in ancient times, we are navigating by following the skies. Even if those skies are on a screen in front of us, on a computer, in an astrology program, it's still the skies. And we navigate personally by following our own chart. Essentially navigating by following your own soul. So that's where I want to start to head into Reflections on Saturn and Pisces. So to begin with, I've got a couple of poems. Each of them speaks to the state of the world and give us a lot to reflect on. As Saturn moves through the sign of Pisces, the oceanic water sign, capable of great compassion and sensitive also to great suffering, which there is a lot of in the world right now. So this first poem is by Hermann Hesse, who was born in 1877, with Saturn at 20 degrees of Pisces and 20 minutes. So what we are experiencing in the world for the next two and a half to three years, while Saturn is moving through Pisces, Hermann Hesse was born with these dynamics in his birth chart, in his soul. And at one point he wrote this poem, called Now and Then. Now and then, everything feels wrong and desolate, and sprawling in pain, weak and exhausted. Every effort reverts to grief. Every joy collapses with broken wings, and our longing listens for distant summons, aching to receive news filled with joy. But we still miss bliss. Fortunate fates elude from afar. Now is the time to listen within. Tend our inner garden mindfully until new flowers, new blessings can bloom. Doesn't that poem seem to capture something about the world right now? This just seems to bring out that nature of Pisces as the last sign of the zodiac where things come to an end. And when he writes, now is the time to listen within, tend our inner garden mindfully until new flowers, new blessings can bloom. I feel this speaks to the position of Pisces in the Zodiac right before spring, right before the sign of Aries, where things begin again. So this time with Saturn in Pisces is meant to be a time to listen within and pay attention to what is forming essentially in dream time, whether that's sleeping or awake, because there are things 
preparing to be born in Aries, and they're not quite there yet. I just like to go back to John Moriarty, who refers to far off times when dreaming, not waking, was the norm. Now, this next poem, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's from W.H. Auden, who was born in 1907, also with Saturn in Pisces. Saturn at 15 degrees, 41 minutes of Pisces. Of course, Pisces would be the sign of the archetypal poet, the archetypal poetic perspective on the world. And I love poets who were actually born with Saturn in Pisces. This is a poem called Musée de Beaux-Arts, or the Museum of Fine Arts, where Auden is reflecting on paintings that he's looking at. I won't read the whole poem, just the beginning section and the end section. About suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters. How well they understood its human position, how it takes place while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. In Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster. The plowman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, but for him it was not an important failure. The sun shone as it had to on the white legs disappearing into the green water. And the expensive, delicate ship that must have seen something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky, had somewhere to get to and sailed calmly on. It's a rather extraordinary poem. We know there is great suffering taking place in the world right now. And at the same time, ordinary lives continue. This is one way that speaks to the paradoxical nature of the Piscean fish, connected to each other but swimming in opposite directions, suggesting that great suffering and ordinary lives are not mutually exclusive. Now on a lighter note, next June... June 14th, 2024, we have the scheduled premiere of Disney Pixar's movie, Inside Out 2. And if you haven't seen the original movie, Inside Out, I encourage you to check it out. It's a wonderful movie in which basic emotions are personified and given great character. Now, I mention this because the sequel, Inside Out 2, adds a new emotion into the mix. And while Saturn is moving through Pisces, Inside Out 2 introduces the emotion, anxiety. Now, perhaps it's just the spirit of the times that when I said, now on a lighter note, and I started talking about Inside Out 2, the lighter note ends up being that anxiety is added to the mix of emotions. Now, the full roster is joy, sadness, Anger, fear, disgust, and anxiety. And here's where I want to mention a note about Venus. I've talked about this before, but I'll add on to it. There's a rather amazing backdrop astrologically of Venus in the sky these days, and for quite a while to come. And what I mean by that is that Venus right now 
is herself in the sign of Libra, and Venus rules Libra. The south node is also in Libra. We also have Jupiter in the sign of Taurus, which is Venus ruled, and we have Uranus in the sign of Taurus. And that brings us to Saturn in Pisces, where Venus finds her exaltation, and Saturn is making his way along through the sign of Pisces, getting closer and closer to Neptune, who's been in Pisces for quite a while. But in the sky right now, we have Libra, ruled by Venus, Taurus, ruled by Venus, and Saturn and Neptune in Pisces, where Venus is exalted. This makes Venus kind of a low-key, huge deal. Not only because powerful planets are moving through the signs of her rulership and exaltation, but this ties into the greater cycles. Because as Jupiter is moving through Taurus, he will eventually come into a conjunction with the planet Uranus on April 20th, 2024. So next spring, a cycle comes to an end at the same time that the new cycle begins in the Venus-ruled sign of Taurus. At the same time, Saturn in Pisces is moving closer and closer to Neptune in Pisces, and they will come into conjunction on February 20th, 2026. That will actually be a conjunction in the sign of Aries, but at zero degrees of Aries, at the very beginning of the Zodiac. So a Saturn and Neptune cycle is coming to an end, covering the entire sign of Pisces, Venus's exaltation, and will begin on February 20th, 2026, in the sign of Aries. What Saturn and Neptune moving together in Pisces amounts to is essentially an extraordinary dream time. Now, I recently decided to watch the movie Pretty Woman, you know, with Richard Gere and Julia Roberts. I hadn't seen it in years, but it just felt like the kind of movie I wanted to watch. And of course, I had to pull up the chart for the date of the premiere of Pretty Woman, which is March 23rd, 1990. What does this have to do with anything that I'm talking about in this episode? Well, in 1990, we had Uranus in the sign of Capricorn, Neptune in the sign of Capricorn, and Saturn in the sign of Capricorn. At the same time, we had Mars in Aquarius, the North Node in Aquarius, and Venus in Aquarius. All of these planets are in the signs ruled by Saturn. It's especially notable because Saturn and Uranus and Neptune all move pretty slowly, especially the outer planets. So they were making their way through the sign of Capricorn, Saturn ruled, and then through the sign of Aquarius, also Saturn ruled, in the 90s. So as an archetypal pairing, Richard Gere and Julia Roberts. Richard Gere is a businessman in the movie who I think wears a suit almost the entire time. He doesn't seem to sleep much. He doesn't seem to eat much, but he works a lot. Hello, Capricorn. Hello, Saturn. And of course, the Venusian figure of Julia Roberts. And as the two start spending more and more time around each other, doesn't hurt that it's in a luxury hotel, she starts to have an effect on him. And after a few days, the Richard Gere character calls his lawyer 
to say that he's taking the whole day off, something he hadn't done in years, if ever. So as you'll see in this episode, as I talk more about Saturn and start to open up the mysterious way that Saturn operates, it can be very worthwhile to remember this Venusian backdrop in the sky as an important reminder that there's more to life than work. If we actually take the sign of Libra, Saturn's exaltation, and Venus's rulership, and we put Saturn and Venus on the scales, and look at the culture, in a lot of ways Saturn is weighing down the scales completely. And Venus, the true nature of Venus, love and beauty, could stand to have the kind of impact she has culturally, like she does in the movie Pretty Woman. Venus is a very different way of life. And I also want to mention here Emily St. John Mandel's book, Station Eleven. It's a book about a global pandemic, much, much worse than the one that we've been through. In What's Left of Humanity, the book follows a group of traveling musicians and actors called the Traveling Symphony. They travel in three caravans, all labeled the Traveling Symphony, but the book notes the lead caravan carries an additional line of text, which says, because survival is insufficient. Now that is a line from the television show Star Trek Voyager, which came out in January 1995, when Saturn was at nine degrees of Pisces. Star Trek Voyager was, of course, the first Star Trek series to feature a female captain, the amazing Kate Mulgrew as Captain Janeway, which, if we're talking literally, speaks to Venus as a female. But, of course, Venus in everybody's chart speaks to Venus in anyone's psyche, which is not literal, it's poetic. But it's interesting to me that in a television show essentially born with Saturn in Pisces, we get this line, survival is insufficient. In Star Trek Voyager, Captain Janeway and her crew are flung to the far edges of the known universe and into the unknown, into the Delta Quadrant. That sounds like a good metaphor for the world we're living in right now. But I actually want to take us back to the current times, 2023, and talk about five significant things from over the summer into the fall. Because back in mid-June, Saturn turned retrograde in Pisces which means that Saturn slowed down, came to a stop, and appeared to be moving backwards in the sky. That's a typical retrograde for any planet. But what was going on just before that time and during that time? Well, from May 2nd to September 27th, for 148 days, the Writers Guild of America representing 11,500 screenwriters, went on strike. They had a dispute with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. This was a 148-day strike. 
Now, a couple months later, from July 14th to November 9th, for 118 days, the Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, you are probably very familiar with the term SAG-AFTRA at this point, it's the American Actors Union, they went on strike over a labor dispute with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. Everything came to a halt. During that time, I actually went to a convention for one of my absolute favorite TV shows, Supernatural, and no signage in the hotel could mention the name of the TV show. And as the two stars of the show, Jared Padalecki and Jensen Ackles, were talking on stage, they could not refer by name to the television show they starred in for 15 years. It was super interesting. But back to business, this was the SAG after strike that lasted 118 days. Now, there was another strike, the United Auto Workers strike, from September 15th to October 30th, one month, two weeks, and one day before it was resolved. This strike set a new precedent because it was the United Workers for the first time striking against three automakers, Ford Motor Company, General Motors, and Stellantis. Meanwhile, before that strike concluded, we had the largest documented strike of U.S. healthcare workers on record, involving more than 75,000 workers. Now, as if that wasn't enough, going back to the U.S. political scene, the House of Representatives went without a speaker for three weeks, for 21 days, 21 hours, 9 minutes, and 2 seconds if you want to be Saturnian about it, paralyzing the government with a government shutdown imminent. And all of this got me to thinking that there's something about Saturn in Pisces. It's like this is a time for recalibration, because it's essentially a time for the soul to catch up with us. It's a time for the soul to catch up with us from where we left it behind. So it's essentially us slowing down, us returning to a place to connect to the soul. It's like another tree on the branch of Hermann Hesse's tending that inner garden. It's a bit like Richard Gere taking the day off from work, even though it's a different scenario with a different reason. The same kind of dynamic is going on. It's a recalibration of work and what you're working for but it's also like a recalibration of Saturn in your life. What are you spending time doing? And I want to string this together with the next segment. So now I want to bring in a couple more elements about what's going on culturally, what's been showing up. And it was about a year ago or so that the songwriter Gretchen Peters sent out to her mailing list an announcement. 
Now, if you attended one of my webinars so far talking about Saturn in Pisces, you may have heard me play a short clip of a song called On a Bus to St. Cloud by Trisha Yearwood. It's a beautiful song, and it's written by Gretchen Peters. She writes her own songs, sings her own songs, and a score of them have been recorded by country music artists like Faith Hill, Garth Brooks, Trisha Yearwood, Martina McBride. As part of her announcement, Gretchen Peters said this, The music business has become increasingly relentlessly demanding of artists. The pressure to release new content, not a synonym for art, to churn out singles and albums and videos and reels and posts on a prescribed schedule, often utterly out of sync with the artist's internal one, isn't producing more or greater art. It's just increasing the noise and exhausting the artists. As someone who has always needed to let the field lie fallow in between creative bursts, I understand the pressure on young artists, and I hope they will resist. We need better songs, not more of them. We need artists who want to make art that lasts, not content that's digested in the time it takes to scroll through your Instagram feed. Now, I recalled that recently because I was reading about Jessica Lange, the great actress, 74 years old, known most recently as the star of numerous seasons of American Horror Story, but I loved her too in Big Fish. She told newspapers recently that she's planning to retire in the near future. She said creativity is secondary now to corporate profits. The emphasis becomes not on the art or the artist or the storytelling. It becomes about satisfying your stockholders. It diminishes the artist and the art of filmmaking. The actor who's collected her fair share of Oscars, Emmys, and Golden Globes over the course of her four-decade career said she's mourning the loss of, quote, wonderful films by really great filmmakers, wonderful stories, great characters. Now keep this in mind as we move through this episode. I'm thinking this has to do with Venus as the backdrop. Venus is asking for more. Now similarly, the actress Emma Thompson shared recently why she hates the word content. And she said, it's a rude word for creative people. In an article by Shania Russell, it says, never tell Emma Thompson that you're a fan of her content. The actress won't take it as a compliment. From her perspective, it's not the right word to describe movies and TV shows. And it's the perfect example of the relationship breakdown between studios and creatives. To hear people talk about content, she says, makes me feel like the stuffing inside a sofa cushion. It's just rude, actually. It's just a rude word for creative people. The acclaimed actress went on to explain exactly why she finds the word so insulting. You don't want to hear your stories described as content. 
or your acting or your producing described as content. That's just like coffee grounds in the sink or something. It's, I think, a very misleading word. Thompson says she wants to feel different after watching something. I want to feel as though I've been shifted slightly, even if it's just my mood or I've learned something extraordinary, she explained. That is something we just have to keep on thinking about because that takes you away from this thing of content. What is the story that you want to hear and that you want to tell that you think will make people feel different, safer, stronger? So there we've got three, Gretchen Peters, Jessica Lange, and Emma Thompson, all speaking out against the word content on behalf of art and culture. There's a way that when Gretchen Peters says content is not a synonym for art, we could make the move to say that content satisfies the ego. One can feel productive. The soul asks us for more than content. I mean, it's right there in the word. Because until you know how it's used, you don't know if it's content or content. Content is not the way that the psyche works. Gretchen Peters knows that, Jessica Lange knows that, and Emma Thompson knows that. Three artists who want to make great art that lasts. I think this is important because in the way that art imitates life and life imitates art, art often leads the way. Toni Morrison and Ursula K. Le Guin talk about that, and Carl Jung talks about it. And ever since I became an astrologer, learning as above, so below, the stars as a reflection of what's going on down on earth, and what's going down on earth reflected up in the stars. It's much more than that, actually. At that deeper archetypal level, art is a reflection of what's going on in the stars, and also what's going on deep in the soul of the culture. Deep in the unconscious, or another way to say it, deep in the imagination, or what's taking place at the level where the unconscious is just about to become conscious. So what Gretchen Peters and Jessica Lange and Emma Thompson are talking about is so important because if content is reflecting life and life is reflecting content, life is getting smaller. I have to wonder if it's really touching the level of the soul. That's what all three artists seem to be addressing. And three being that mythic number, that number of the three fates, is all it takes for me to listen up. Now, if we take this idea of the strikes that have happened, where things have stalled or stopped entirely, if we take the reduction of art down to content, and then we revisit the movies I mentioned in my earlier podcast episode about Saturn and Pisces. I want to talk about them in this context. If you remember, I mentioned The Shawshank Redemption, a movie that came out while Saturn was in Pisces around 29 years ago. And it begins in prison. The main character, Andy Dufresne, is sent to prison at the very beginning of the movie. And Saturn rules prisons. 
if we look to the bridges of Madison County, which came out again the last time Saturn was in Pisces, and it's set in 1965, during a time when Saturn was in Pisces. At the very beginning, we have Meryl Streep playing Francesca, a housewife who's settled into domestic life. And then if we look to The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, the movie begins with this incredible lip sync of the song, I've Never Been to Me. But the drag queen performing is tired, worn out, jaded, disillusioned, exhausted. We can tell this a bit during the performance, but it really comes to light following the performance. She's fed up. And in The Sound of Music, of course, Maria is running out to the hills because she can't quite conform to life in the Abbey. So if we notice what all of these situations have in common, one starts off in the confined limits of prison. One starts out in the confined setting of domesticity. One of them starts with a character who's reached the limit of caring. And the other begins breaking out of a space that is too confining. And when Maria ends up in the house of Captain Von Trapp, she meets Saturn's confining nature personified. You might say of each of these scenarios or characters, especially the first three, a sentence comes to mind from a short story I love, and the sentence is, I have worn myself down to a bearable size. And that brings us to the next section. Now, the phrase or sentence, I've worn myself down to a bearable size, comes from a story by the brilliant writer Garth Greenwell. It's a short story called Mentor, which is suitably Saturnian, from a book called Cleanness, which is a collection of his short stories, which interestingly enough was published right at the start of the pandemic when everybody was obsessed with cleanness and Purell products and making sure everything was sanitized properly. And I love this story. It's one of the stories that I go back to and read again, because in it, the main character is an American teacher of literature who's teaching in Bulgaria. And in the story, one of the students, who's generally been pretty quiet, asks to speak with him. So the teacher puts on his mentor hat and goes to meet the student. And the student is either looking for advice or just a sympathetic ear. Because among the student's close-knit group of friends, including a friend he's known since childhood, all his life, the student's attraction to that friend comes out and is not met kindly by the friend. For various reasons including the friend not reciprocating the feelings back, but also perhaps the culture's response to gay relationships. But after being rejected by his friend, the student seeks out the teacher, the mentor. And what makes the story so great is that you get the inside picture of the mentor 
working through this in his own way as he's hearing the tale unfold and wondering what he's going to say. Now, I want to pick this up towards the end of the story and read a section of it in the context of Saturn. Now, the characters don't have names. They're just letters. The student is G. Here is an excerpt from Mentor by Garth Greenwell. And I should point out that Garth Greenwell was born a Pisces with the sun squaring Jupiter. I told him that I loved him, but he didn't understand me, or he pretended not to understand. I had to explain it, and once I started speaking, I couldn't stop. After being silent for so long, I spoke too much. But it didn't matter what I said. I only made things worse by talking. He didn't welcome it at all, and he hadn't had any idea. I guess I thought he had known it somehow that he was all I thought about, the only thing I cared about. But he was surprised, really surprised, and he didn't welcome it. He turned away when I kept talking. He wasn't cruel to me. He was gentle. He was even kind. But he didn't pretend we could go on as we had. We would stop being friends, he said. He said he was sorry. He didn't want me to suffer. And it was the quickest way to end suffering. And anyway, he couldn't be comfortable with me now. I was crying then, G said. I don't think he had ever seen me cry before. I couldn't stop. Why did you tell me, he said. I've lost something too. You've taken something from me too. And I had, I realized. I had ruined so much for him and for me. I was wrong to tell him, G said. I shouldn't have said anything. Along with everything else now, I'm so sorry for what I said. But there's nothing I can do. I have to live with it, like I have to live with everything else I feel. He paused and then, but what if I can't bear it, he said, looking up at me, finally catching my eye. And though at first I thought the question was rhetorical, I realized it was genuine. I needed to have something to say. I remembered the confidence I had had hours before in my own competence, the pleasure I had taken in the solace I could give, and I wished I could have some of it back, that it would ease the sense I had now of helplessness and loss, the loss of what I wasn't precisely sure, an idea of myself, I suppose, what shouldn't have been so precious to me, but was. Other people have gone through this, I began, finding it difficult to speak. Other people have felt it. They bear it and they get through it. They aren't trapped in it forever. These feelings, I said lamely, all of them, they will get easier. They'll stop being the only thing you feel. They'll fade and make room for other feelings. And then in time, You'll look at them from far away, almost entirely without pain, as if they were felt by somebody else or felt in a dream. That's what it's like, I said, thinking I had struck on something. It's precisely like waking from a dream. 
And like a self in a dream, the self that feels this will be incomprehensible to you. And the intensity you feel now will be like a puzzle you can't solve, a puzzle it finally isn't worth your while to solve. I was speaking of myself, of course, of my own experience with love, with overwhelming love that had made me at times such a stranger to myself. But I could see this failing even as I spoke. I could see him recoiling from me, looking at me with an expression first of surprise and then of dismay, and then of something like revulsion. I don't want to feel it less, he said. I don't want it to stop. I don't want it to seem like it wasn't real. It would all be for nothing if that happened, he said. I don't want it to be a dream. I want it to be real, all of it. And who else could I love, he asked, his voice softening. We grew up together in the same country, with the same language. We became adults together. Who could I meet wherever I go next who could know me like that? Who could love me as much as he could love me? Who could I love as much? What life could I want except for that life, he said. What other life than that could I bear? He raised his hand then, signaling for the waitress and signaling too that our talk was over, that he had exhausted all hope of my helpfulness and I was both relieved and exasperated by this, and exasperated, too, by what he had said. But this is a story you're telling yourself, I said, a story you've made up that will make you unhappy. There's nothing inevitable about it. It's a choice you've made. You can choose a different story. But he was already gone, though he was still with me at the table. He was taking out his wallet to pay the check, which I covered with my hand as the waitress laid it down. I've got it, I said, and he thanked me for the coffee and for the talk. And though he stood there willing to wait for me, he was clearly relieved when I let him go, saying I would wait for my change. I watched him as he left, walking hunched over just slightly, carrying away the despair he held on to so tightly and I told myself he would grow out from under it, that he would go to university and discover a new life in England or America, new freedoms and possibilities, a greater scope for love, and with it room in himself for other feelings. The pain he felt now would become a story he told to others, I thought. And of course he couldn't believe this. Of course it seemed impossible, I told myself. Of course I had failed to make him see it. I walked into the street, breathing in the fresh air and setting off in what I hoped was the direction of the Nevsky Cathedral, from which I was sure I could find my way home. As I walked, I remembered other times I had felt impatience or exasperation with my students' private lives, with their outsized passions and griefs. And I felt this even as I knew that the perspective they lacked couldn't be willed, that it came only and inevitably with time. He would be all right, I thought again, comforting myself by thinking it, though I thought too that he wasn't 
altogether mistaken in what he had said, that there would be loss in loving another, that the perspective that limited his grief would also limit his love, which, having taken the measure of its bounds, he could never again imagine as boundless. And I had thought this before, too, how much we lose in gaining this truer vision of ourselves, the vision I had urged upon my student, the vision it was my obligation to urge, though it carried us away from our dreams of ourselves, from the grandeur of novels and poems, which it was also my obligation to impart. How smaller I have become, I said to myself, through an erosion necessary to survival, perhaps, and perhaps still to be regretted. I've worn myself down to a bearable size. And then I realized that I had wandered into a maze of narrow streets, the walls on either side too high to glimpse the gold dome of my landmark. And I began to walk more quickly, spurred by the unease that always claims me when I lose track of where I am. Now, in some ways, what you've just heard is a doorway into Saturn-Neptune dynamics, or even Saturn-Jupiter dynamics. The students' feelings and passions and emotions take on Romantic-era sensibilities, and the mentor, despite teaching literature and poetry in his role as Saturn, tries to talk the student down, as I say, from such wuthering heights, with one of the key sentences being, as he reflects on himself walking away, how much smaller I have become through an erosion necessary to survival, perhaps, and perhaps still to be regretted, I've worn myself down to a bearable size. Now, this parallels something Thomas More says in his book, Care of the Soul, where he says we do not care for the soul by shrinking it down to reasonable size. And I think that's so important at this juncture, because with Saturn in Pisces and Neptune in Pisces, caring for the soul is of vital importance. And if we look back to Shawshank Redemption, Bridges of Madison County, and the adventures of Priscilla, queen of the desert, they begin with a character whose life or self has been worn down to a bearable size, who's been positioned with the bare minimum. And remember that Pisces is a sign ruled by Jupiter. Jupiter expands things and makes them bigger. Jupiter exaggerates. Venus is exalted in Pisces the planet of love and beauty and creativity. And right now it's as if Western culture has worn itself down to a bearable size that is becoming unbearable more and more. It's becoming increasingly unbearable. That's why we can lean into Saturn and Pisces from that impractical perspective, which may not be about productivity, but rather connecting with the soul connecting with that dream time within the self. Notice how the mentor says, how much smaller I have become through 
an erosion necessary to survival, perhaps, and perhaps still to be regretted. The suggestion being that closing the door in his own life, on his dreams, on his outsized feelings, may be something he lives to regret. Now, if I go back and I pull along pieces from earlier in this episode, remember that line, because survival is insufficient? I don't know how Garth Greenwell did it. He captured one of the most complex dynamics of Saturn. It's one of the innate struggles within the archetype itself. Remember Demetra George saying, the nature of Saturn is to endure? Remember, the nature of Saturn is opposition? Saturn is the god of opposites? There's something innately oppositional within the nature of Saturn itself. Because not only is Saturn's nature to endure, but Saturn was associated with the destructive life force in nature. This is a very challenging combination. This is why survival is insufficient. But put a check there for a moment, because I want to look at the chart for the day of the release of cleanness. When this story came into the world, the book was released on January 14th, 2020, This is just a couple of days after the great Saturn-Pluto conjunction in Capricorn. But not only that, on that day, January 14th, 2020, we have the south node in Capricorn at 7 degrees, Jupiter in Capricorn at 9 degrees, Pluto in Capricorn at 22 degrees, Saturn in Capricorn at 23 degrees, exactly conjunct the Sun at 23 degrees, with Mercury in Capricorn at 26 degrees. How extraordinary to have a story about reducing oneself down to a bearable size, while the Sun is in Capricorn exactly conjunct Saturn, but also conjunct Pluto in Capricorn. And I would note that Venus that day was in Pisces, I didn't actually think to look up the chart until just recently, and I was astonished to see this. The chart fits the story so well in one of those astrological occurrences that begs the line, you can't make this up. But to bring us back into things, it's like going back to when I was talking about content earlier, or rather when Gretchen Peters was talking about content, And she says we need artists who want to make art that lasts. This is a plea for Saturn to be invested in things. Art that endures. But at the same time, investing Saturn in things is exactly what can reduce it down to content. This is the great crux of Saturn, where we hang on to this tension of the opposites and the essential opposites in Saturn of being associated with the destructive life force, at the same time, Saturn's nature is to endure. That's why I mentioned the spectrum earlier of endure, of endurance. 
because survival is insufficient. But one must survive to be grandpa, telling Naomi and Winona about the good old days. How do you live now to be able to look back years on down the line and refer to the good old days? This is why the psychological perspective on Saturn is so important. So we're going to turn to that next. If we go back now to Demetra George's book, Ancient Astrology in Theory and Practice, A Manual of Traditional Techniques, Volume 1, she begins with a brief and fascinating timeline of the history of astrology. I'm just going to summarize two main trajectories. The first is that what we call traditional astrology spans the time frame of 2000 BCE to 1700 CE. It involves various sub-pieces based in various cultures, and because it's traditional astrology, it's about the original seven planets. And of course, we call the sun and the moon planets, even though they're not technically, but it's the sun, the moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, the furthest out. And it was in the aftermath of the Copernican Revolution, which began in 1543 when Pluto was in Aquarius, and the influence that it had on society, that by 1700, astrology went underground. Now, as I was reading Demetra's timeline of history, I began to imagine a Venn diagram, where in the circle on the left, we have traditional astrology from 2000 BCE to 1700 CE, and then the right circle has modern astrology. And I'm going to say 1700 to the present, even though astrology was still underground, but I'm going to put a little asterisk by it. You can see the slide in the PDF linked in the show notes. I'm putting 1700 with an asterisk because it was during Renaissance astrology that someone like Marsilio Ficino, immersed in traditional astrology, kind of began to do non-traditional things with the planets, especially Jupiter and Saturn, sort of early roots of what would become psychological astrology but more importantly, because of the discovery of the outer planets. It's like astrology is underground, and the discovery of Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto perhaps drew it back out. But if you look at that Venn diagram, or just imagine it, on the left, traditional astrology, on the right, modern astrology, in that overlap in the middle, I see Saturn, for two reasons. The first being that traditional astrology went up to and included Saturn, and modern astrology, it's like it can pick up with Saturn and start to incorporate the outer planets. 
but it's also that traditional astrology has a very different way of looking at Saturn than psychological astrology. And I don't know if I'd call them opposites, but it's like it's something we must struggle with in the spirit of Saturn himself. For now, though, let's go back to the history. Once we hit the 1700s, things began to change. We had the discovery of Uranus in 1781, the French Revolution in 1789, not to mention the American Revolution. Neptune was discovered in 1846. Pluto was discovered in 1930. And Chiron was discovered in 1977. So traditional astrology began to go underground in about 1700. And when it eventually began to emerge again, the world had changed in revolutionary ways. Saturn was no longer the limit that it used to be, and we now had to contend with the outer planets. And this, of course, coincides with the development and emergence of depth psychology. And it's like modern astrology picks up with that Saturn, moves it into psychological territory, and takes us into the present. Now, the thing I like with traditional astrology is how over thousands of years, the significations of the planets became pretty solid. And when the outer planets were discovered, some of those significations moved into the outer planets. And this could be a whole panel discussion of astrologers talking about this, whether this is right or wrong, good or bad, accurate or confusing. But my point is, historically, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto bring us from the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason into the Romantic Era by way of the French Revolution. We bring in the Industrial Revolution. It's like time locks in with Saturn in the Victorian Age in a particular way with the invention of the locomotive and infamous train schedules. If you don't show up on time, you miss the train. And then the psychological era, with Pluto being discovered in 1930. So it wasn't just astrology changing with the discovery of the outer planets. It's astrology emerging into a changed world. One thing I love in the psychological era that really makes the point is in Agatha Christie's book, Murder on the Orient Express. The detective Hercule Poirot is investigating a murder and talking with a doctor. And he says, I am not one to rely upon the expert procedure. It is the psychology I seek, not the fingerprint or the cigarette ash. Now, this is actually a really important moment in psychological history, because what he's saying is, I'm not going to rely on evidence from the external world. I need to know what's going on psychologically on the inside. And that was the first time that a detective said something like this. That book was published January 1st, 1934, so less than four years after Pluto was discovered. Now, if we move into the history with modern astrology, Liz Green, of course, has her landmark book, Saturn, a new look at an old devil, 
You can hear the opposites in the title. That came out in 1976, and she explores Saturn from a psychological perspective, moving Saturn out of the malefic characteristics from the traditional way of looking at Saturn and the fated way things are looked at traditionally tied to external outcomes. And suddenly, Saturn wasn't just something one is fated with and helpless to, but this, I would think, is around the same time that a viewpoint began to emerge of the difference between fate and destiny. They actually pretty much mean the same thing, but they took on a different kind of meaning where fate is what you were born with and destiny is what you do with that. Because over the centuries, we've got more options and we have a more psychological understanding. So at the end of her book, Liz Green writes that we are still trapped under the dead weight of malefic planets, afflictions, good and bad characters, and superficial behavioral diagnoses, which show no understanding of motive. It is here that psychology, the newest science, can offer much help to the oldest science, astrology. So that's underway, and Robert Hand publishes Horoscope Symbols in 1981, in which he writes, Saturn is undergoing a great rehabilitation nowadays, and most modern writers agree that it is not as malefic as was once thought. Just as Jupiter, once called the greater benefic, can indicate difficult energies at times, it is also now recognized that Saturn can play a positive role. Yet its power for destruction is still great, because in many cases, we do not know how to handle Saturn energy. And then moving up into the next decade, in 1992, archetypal depth psychologist James Hillman wrote in his book, We've Had a Hundred Years of Psychotherapy and the World's Getting Worse. As I've grown older, I've come to realize that the curses the frustrations, and the character faults visited on me by Saturn mean something completely different than what I thought when I was younger. I took them literally as curses, and I cursed my stars for not giving me what I believed I needed and wanted. That is, I cursed Saturn, to use the old language. But it isn't Saturn who curses us. We curse him. We make him into that poor, shunned, limping old God because we don't understand his mode of blessing. What a curse it must be to keep giving gifts that are received as punishments. The faults and frustrations he visits on us are his way of keeping us true to our particular image. No way out. The old lore attributed the last years of life to Saturn. And so that's a little bit of history from key figures working on Saturn astrologically or psychologically or both. Things to keep in mind as we move ahead. (laughs) 
In putting the various pieces of this episode together, Saturn and Sol, and thinking about the various strikes that have taken place and the unprecedented inability of the U.S. government to function without a Speaker of the House for three weeks, I was reminded of a webinar that I did for MISPA. It's a webinar that you can actually rent on the MISPA website. It's called Saturn and the Outer Planets, Encountering Larger Realities. I had been thinking about Saturn and the Outer Planets for quite a while, and I was inspired by something the writer Ursula K. Le Guin said when she was accepting the National Book Foundation's medal for a distinguished contribution to American letters at the 65th National Book Awards on November 19, 2014, as part of her speech accepting the award and referring to it in this clip, she says, And I rejoice in accepting it for and sharing it with all the writers who were excluded from literature for so long, my fellow authors of fantasy and science fiction, writers of the imagination, who for the last 50 years watched the beautiful awards go to the so-called realists. I think hard times are coming when we will be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now and can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being, and even imagine some real grounds for hope. We will need writers who can remember freedom. Poets, visionaries, the realists of a larger reality. Right now, I think we need writers who know the difference between production of a market commodity and the practice of an art. And in that distinction she makes right there, I hear the difference between Saturn, who is really the planet of realism, and the outer planets, which each in their own way open us up to something larger than that reality that we most commonly call real. And as things are being worn down to a bearable size in many ways, for example, we have social media instead of imagination. We have memes instead of images. We have influencers instead of artists. Fake news instead of fiction. Selfies instead of portraits, and of course, the already mentioned content instead of creativity. When I come across things in the news, I've been saving them over the years, things that bear this common theme. For example, back in 2015, Don McLean, the writer and singer of that classic song, American Pie, he finally revealed what the song is about. And he said, basically, in American Pie, things are heading in the wrong direction. It is becoming less ideal, less idyllic. I don't know whether you consider that wrong or right, but it is a morality song in a sense. I was around in 1970, 
and now I am around in 2015, he says. There is no poetry and very little romance in anything anymore. So it is really like the last phase of American Pie, which is, of course, the day the music died. And country singer Leanne Womack found herself looking at her touring schedule and where she played. And she said, I did tell my manager that I wanted to play different kinds of rooms from here on out. I want to play music in rooms that were built to play music, not built to play basketball. It's a difference, and it feels different. What it comes down to for me is, what does it do for my soul? Leon Womack was born with Saturn in Pisces and asks that important question, what does it do for my soul? So this focus on Saturn and looking at Saturn in Pisces, but also still Pluto in late degrees of Capricorn, I don't think I can be reminded enough, historically, of the difference between the age of reason and the Romantic era. The age of reason or the Enlightenment, with its focus on science, came to an end with the French Revolution, when Pluto was in Aquarius, and at that moment, the Romantic movement was born. And during the Romantic era, art, culture, poetry, theater, music, all of it thrived. And significantly, myth thrived as a reference point for the Romantics. And this is where John Keats comes in, the extraordinary poet born with a sun in Scorpio, conjunct on one side, Venus in Scorpio, and conjunct on the other side, Neptune in Scorpio. And his poem Hyperion begins with a rather extraordinary description of our friend Saturn. Now, I want to read you the beginning of this poem, but I recently heard on the Graham Norton show, Dame Judy Dench reciting spontaneously from memory a Shakespearean sonnet. So as I'm about to read this, I have to remind myself that I am not Judy Dench. The world does not need me to be Judy Dench. So on that note, what I'll do is I'll read the first part of this poem. It's just about 10 lines. It's probably my favorite description of Saturn ever. I'll read these lines and then go back and talk about them. John Keats writes, Deep in the shady sadness of a veil, far sunken from the healthy breath of morn, far from the fiery noon and eve's one star, sat gray-haired Saturn, quiet as a stone, still as the silence round about his lair, forest on forest hung about his head like cloud on cloud. No stir of air was there, not so much life as on a summer's day robs not one light seed from the feathered grass, but where the dead leaf fell, there did it rest. A stream went voiceless by. So I just love that description. And if you spend some time with something like this, the poetry of the Romantics, 
or just really good poetry in general from any era, it does start to sink into the soul. And looking at this poem, just the first line, just the first word, deep, there is something about Saturn that calls us towards the depths, calls us deeper into something by way of gravity. Saturn weighs us down. Remember Saturn as we head toward the winter solstice, where the sun is at its lowest point in the sky, its lowest point of the whole year. It's like the sun reaches its lowest point. It's the longest, darkest night. And who do we meet in those depths? Saturn. Deep in the shady. See, I'm only four words in, and already we get so much from this poem. Saturn is a shady guy. When we're dealing with Saturn, we have to confront something of the shadow. And when we complete the line, deep in the shady sadness of a veil, Saturn is not light and peppy, but Saturn in Pisces, with Pisces' resonance with the Romantic era, with Romanticism, can take on this shady sadness of a veil, sitting in a valley, I think of Francesca in the Bridges of Madison County, played so well by Meryl Streep, maybe not deep in the shady sadness of a veil, but of Madison County, Iowa. And of course, the next line in the poem starts off, far sunken. Far. This is why John Keats was such a genius. He could pack every line with the essence of what he was writing about. And make it beautiful. Because of course Saturn is far sunken from the healthy breath of morn. It's the end of the day. It's interesting to consider how when Saturn and Pluto came together in Capricorn in January of 2020, their conjunction coincided with a global health crisis, aka the pandemic. Far sunken from the healthy breath of morn. Far from the fiery noon and eve's one star, sat gray-haired Saturn, quiet as a stone. Sitting, gray-haired, quiet, a stone. And how he came up with forest on forest, hung about his head like cloud on cloud. Just those lines, forest on forest, hung about his head. I can go back to that musical, Into the Woods, Into the Forest, Into the Black Forests of Germany. You really start to get the feel of Saturn. Not so much life as on a summer's day. But where the dead leaf fell, there did it rest. There's something so solitary about this, so weighty. It doesn't feel like podcast material, but I think it's so important because it's so on point for the Saturnian nature of our times and the kind of reflection that may not seem very attractive, but has its own beauty about it. Remember Venus exalted in Pisces. Now, situating this poem called Hyperion, what's going on with Saturn here? is this is just after Saturn and the other Titans have been defeated by the Olympians. 
in the great battle known as the Titanomachy, the great battle where Jupiter and the other Olympians defeated the Titans and Jupiter or Zeus became the king of the gods, the king of Olympus. So deep in the shady sadness of a veil is a defeated Saturn. And it's the kind of defeat you, of course, do not need to have fought a battle with the gods to feel. Or to say it another way, you feel as if you have been defeated in a battle with the gods. You've tried everything. You don't know what to do next. It's a time for reflection. It's the quintessence of a Saturnian period of melancholy. Because there's something important about melancholy. It makes me think of the pop group ABBA. Such a gift for melody, such a gift for these amazing pop songs, Dancing Queen and Having the Time of Your Life. But all throughout ABBA's music is a sense of melancholy. It adds to the richness. So it's not just light, fluffy pop music. It's something of substance. Saturn gives us something of substance when we really sink into the nature of Saturn in our chart. I wrote something a number of years ago when I was talking about the archetype of North and the archetype of South. To get into the symbolism, to get into the archetypal nature of these opposites, and this takes a little further what um, Thomas Moore and I were discussing in the previous episode about the difference between the spirit and the soul. See, north and south aren't just literal directions. Yes, we can look up north, and we can look down south, and we can see above and below. But we can also feel uplifted, and we can also feel down in the dumps. North and South exist in our images of ascending to heaven or descending into hell. We have flights of fancy or downfalls and depressions. North and South are present in songs like You Raise Me Up and Rolling in the Deep. Rolling in the deep, shady sadness of a veil. But still, You Raise Me Up and Rolling in the Deep. With a timeless archetypal perspective, North and South become much more than they initially seem. To build on this further, in North we have the spirit, with its uplifting attitudes, outward expansions, and transcendent off-the-earth peak experiences, like winged Icarus soaring toward the sun. In South we have the soul with its downward descents, inner life, and dark depressive moods, like Icarus again, now falling into the oceanic depths. If rainy days and Mondays always bring you down, you are experiencing a sense of south. This archetypal perspective is alive in our bodies too, with the mind it is said of some people that they have nothing going on upstairs, again, north, and the heart with its ever-present desires to fall in love. The mind can be said to be full of hot air, like an inflated balloon ascending into the clouds, 
and we tend to want to get down to the heart of the matter. Taking this into a historical context, it's fascinating to me that from the brooding heart of the post-Civil War Deep South emerged the blues, and from the blues emerged country music, full of loss and longing for what has been lost, with all of its melancholy blues, sad eyes, broken wings, long goodbyes, bad goodbyes, lonesome doves, friends in low places, falling to pieces, learning to live again, learning to fly again, and lyrical sentiments like, when you're flying high, take my heart along, I'll still be here when you come back down. Even though I'm using the terms north and south, you could replace those words with spirit and soul. North would be the spirit, and south would be the soul, because it's in the nature of the spirit to ascend, to get off of the earth, to move quickly and look ahead. And it's the nature of the soul to descend, slow down, and look back and reflect. And there seems to be something about this downward direction, the direction of depth, that the culture isn't really that fond of, because it comes along with feeling down, having the blues. But the soul doesn't really go away. And so that's why the culture has, for example, Red Bull, super caffeinated drinks, getting up in the morning with one, two, three, four cups of coffee, or however many is required. And that's not to suggest that coffee isn't great. It's just to suggest that maybe it would be a different experience if that coffee in the morning was wrenched out of Saturn's grip of necessity and put in the arms of, say, Venus. It would be different. But so much about Saturn and melancholy, so much about Saturn and the experience of grief and the experience of defeat, seems to be part of the package that creates something of quality, something long-lasting, like in the ABBA songs. It's something I love about country music, the way so much of it plays to the nature of the soul, plays with it while keeping it deeply felt, it's why we get Garth Brooks's famous song, Friends in Low Places. I remember a song by John Michael Montgomery lamenting about all of those people up on cloud nine because he's stuck down on cloud eight, where there's not a whole lot going on. And one of my favorites from Trisha Yearwood is Under the Rainbow. But if we can use that as a transition to go over the rainbow and talk about Kansas and Oz, which I've talked about in previous episodes, where Depression-era Kansas is the spirit of the times, with Oz representing the spirit of the depths. Saturn is a doorway from one to the other. Keeping in mind Saturn as the god of opposites, we can walk through that door and just like that, find ourselves in New York City. Now, here is another slice of pop culture that I file under Saturn in Pisces. And it's a scene from an episode of the television show, And Just Like That. 
It's an odd name for a television show. It's hard to just fit it into a sentence. If you don't know what it is, you might recognize it more as the reboot of Sex and the City. The scene is from an episode in season two, and it's the episode called Bomb Cyclone, where the characters wake up and New York City is being hit by a snowpocalypse, and they've got things to do. When the show came back last year, and the reboot is an odd kind of show, it's dealing with characters that seem to have enormous wealth. So it's kind of fun to live that fantasy as you're watching the show. But it also tries to address, in the storyline and in its casting, social justice issues, including diversity, something the original show lacked in a lot of ways, which just goes to show a lot of things that have changed in the culture since then. But sometimes, and just like that, can be a bit tone deaf. But overall, especially in the second season, I feel like it has its heart in the right place. So in this episode called Bomb Cyclone, the characters wake up and New York City is being hit by a snowpocalypse. I just have to do a sidebar here with a warning about spoilers. But in the first episode of the reboot, Carrie's husband died of a heart attack. And it really isn't until the middle of season two, where Carrie is forced to confront this and deal with her feelings, deal with her emotions, as she writes her new book called Loved and Lost. And she especially has to confront her emotions when she's reading the audiobook. And as I am someone who records a podcast, I know there's a huge difference between the emotion involved in writing something and the emotion involved in speaking something. Sometimes it's like night and day. And as part of the promotion for her book, Loved and Lost, Carrie goes to speak at WidowCon, a convention for grieving widows who have lost their husbands. And when she arrives and looks in the back of the auditorium, the audience is roaring with laughter. On stage is comedian Maddie Thomas, who is making joke after joke about death. It's almost strenuously funny, firing machine gun-like jokes one after another after another, keeping the audience going, laughing, with more laughter and more laughter. So, of course, Carrie is nervous about speaking. And the part that we, the audience watching from home, watching this episode from home, get to see is very interesting. She's very sincere. She's speaking to an audience which is now very serious. And she says, I thought that over time, my grief would shrink, that it wouldn't fill every inch of me like it had for so long. My sadness never shrank, but I grew and grew until I was so large, the grief just felt smaller. And then I realized it was time. You don't move on because you're ready to. You move on because you've outgrown who you used to be. And when she closes the book and looks at the audience, the audience responds with such genuine applause and a lot of it. 
and backstage waiting for Carrie is Maddie Thomas. She introduces herself, and she's so warm, totally different person than was up on stage. She says, hey, Carrie, Maddie Thomas, that was great. And I wanted to say, oh, thank you for your book. I loved it. And so warm and so genuine. It's a really amazing scene. And if you're wondering, what does this have to do with Saturn? What does this have to do with Saturn in Pisces? Well, continuing to lean on the melancholy theme, did you know that Saturn rules clowns? And if I just had to pick Saturn in one sign in particular that ruled clowns, it would be Saturn in Pisces. You know, the clowns doing happy things with sad faces or sad things with happy faces. There's emotion there. And this scene beginning with Maddie Thomas and the sort of enforced laughter, it's like, yikes, compared to Carrie speaking from the heart, changing the whole atmosphere. This is Saturn. Now, for this last section, we have a smattering of Saturn tidbits. We've just spent this whole time with Saturn stirred into a pot, trying to bring out cultural images, stories, song references that get at Saturn without reducing Saturn to keywords. To start, I've got a couple of parallel quotes one from John Moriarty from his book Dreamtime, and one from Olga Tokarczuk from her book Flights. Now, John Moriarty, who is philosopher, artist, psychologist, mystic, poet, extraordinaire, he says our idea of time as a continuity in an eternal straight line has crippled our consciousness cruelly. So keep that in mind. Our idea of time as a continuity in an eternal straight line. Now, Olga Tokarczuk's book, Flights, is a unique and remarkable and beautiful book. It's written in fragments. Some fragments are a few pages long. Others are one sentence long. And it doesn't follow a linear order but it's an amazing book. And in it, she writes, straight lines, how humiliating they were, how they destroyed the mind, what perfidious geometry, how it makes us into idiots, there and back, a parody of travel, going forth merely in order to return again, speeding up just to put on the brakes. It's just amazing to me how similar John Moriarty's sentiment is to Olga Tokarczuk's sentiment. And I put both under hashtag Saturn. And next up, I've got three generations of Saturn in Capricorn to look at, just briefly. 
And if I choose the quotes wisely or choose the life events or circumstance wisely, they reflect Saturn in Capricorn. They reflect something of Saturn's nature as the ruler of Capricorn. The first is Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison was born in 1931 with Saturn at 19 degrees of Capricorn. And trying to learn everything that I possibly can about Toni Morrison's life. I love one of the things she says when she was a young mother. Looking back on the time when she was a single parent living alone with her two kids, she wasn't yet Toni Morrison. She made a decision in terms of how she was going to frame her life at that point, being pulled in many directions. She said, if it doesn't make me a better mother, or it doesn't make me a better writer, I'm not going to do it. Hashtag Saturn and Capricorn. I love it. Setting your own limits in your own best interest. And also from Toni Morrison is this wonderful line we'll hear in her own voice from a commencement speech she gave to women graduating from college. There is nothing, believe me, more satisfying, more gratifying than true adulthood. Ugh, what a line. And that whole commencement speech is out of this world. So next we move to RuPaul. RuPaul was born in 1960 with Saturn at 14 degrees of Capricorn. And he says, this life is a long life and you have to stay engaged long enough for the blessing to happen. On my website, you can find a talk called Saturn in Capricorn, The End of the Innocence, in which I talk much more about RuPaul and about Toni Morrison. And next up is Taylor Swift, born in 1989, with Saturn at 13 degrees of Capricorn. And because I'm going to say a little bit more about her, I want to point out that she has Saturn conjunct Neptune at 11 degrees of Capricorn, and she also has Uranus in Capricorn earlier at 4 degrees. It's hard to do anything right now in the world without hearing about Taylor Swift. And as it happens, as I was getting to the finishing stages of this episode... Taylor Swift was announced as Time Magazine's 2023 Person of the Year. Now, I love it. Time Magazine, Newsweek Magazine, Saturn. It's really a magnificent article. It's beautifully written. It's very generous of spirit and captures something really powerful about Taylor's life and life as an artist, starting when she was a teenager and really before that. And of course, when I'm reading, I'm hearing the archetypal highlights. And the author spotlights what he refers to as a larger narrative in Swift's life, where he says, Our protagonist discovers new happiness, not despite challenges, but because of them. Hashtag Saturn in Capricorn. Because that's how Saturn works. Saturn's annoying. Saturn annoys us in precisely the way we least want to be annoyed. 
That's how you know it's Saturn territory. But again, in Taylor Swift's life, she discovers new happiness, not despite challenges, but because of them. And here's another line that just sticks out to me as so Saturn speaking. She says, I know I'm going on that stage, whether I'm sick, injured, heartbroken, uncomfortable, or stressed. That's part of my identity as a human being now. If someone buys a ticket to my show, I'm going to play it unless we have some sort of force majeure. And in terms of things playing out in time, through time, the processes of time, elsewhere she says, Life is short. Have adventures. Me locking myself away in my house for a lot of years, I'll never get that time back. I'm more trusting now than I was six years ago. When I, when I read that, I just love how she says life is short. And RuPaul says, this is a long life. This is Saturn's opposites at play. Same kind of essential meaning said in opposite ways. And the last bit I want to comment on with, with this article is perhaps the most significant. It says maybe this is the real Taylor Swift effect, that she gives people, many of them women, particularly girls, who have been conditioned to accept dismissal, gaslighting, and mistreatment from a society that treats their emotions as inconsequential, permission to believe that their interior lives matter. That for your heart to break, whether it's from being kicked off a tour or by the memory of a scarf still sitting in a drawer somewhere, or because somebody else controls your life's work, is a valid wound. And no, you're not crazy for being upset about it or for wanting your story to be told. You know, and what I love about that is that for an entire generation of people alive at this time, listening to her, she has managed to mediate for all of those people the importance of the inner world. She's a voice in the outer world validating the inner world. She's validating this for a whole generation. So I tried to draw out the things that were the most Saturn or the most Saturn in Capricorn, but she's also done an extraordinary job of working with Saturn conjunct Neptune. Listen to this from an interview that she did. I don't feel great when I am fed messages and when I was fed messages as a young girl that it's more important to be edgy and sexy and cool than anything else. I don't think that those are the right messages to feed girls, and I think they're being given those messages by the popular cliques in their school, which is all kind of cascading down from the media and what we seem to prioritize in women. And I think that um, those were the times that I haven't felt good enough because my life, my life doesn't gravitate towards being edgy, sexy, or cool. I just naturally am not any of those things. What and are so, you in your head? What are you? I'm imaginative, I'm smart, and I'm hardworking. And those things are not necessarily prioritized in pop culture. It's extraordinary to me how she identifies herself first as imaginative. That's the key. 
she's coming from that place that Ursula K. Le Guin would refer to as a larger reality. It's a larger reality than Saturn alone. That's what happens when Saturn and Neptune come together, is that it starts to shift Saturnian dynamics. And you can hear it in her lyrics. We're in a song called New Romantics. She says, baby, I can build a castle out of all the bricks they threw at me. That's how you do Saturn. And when she's younger, in a song called Long Live, she says, Long live the walls we crashed through. I had the time of my life fighting dragons with you. There are times in life with Saturn that we're building walls, we're building castles. And there are times when we have to push through the walls or crash through the walls. And if the nature of Saturn is to endure, there's something rather exceptional with her Eras tour, singing concert after concert after concert, three and a half to four hour long concerts, without getting sick, without stopping for any reason, and creating music, albums, songs that seem bound to stand the tests of time. And I would feel amiss here if I didn't mention the fact that she has Pluto in Scorpio which I have no doubt plays into the effect that she's had on a generation of people and the amount of energy she is able to tap into to keep going. And now the last bit on the smorgasbord, are you ready to go back to Titanic? This could actually be the start of a whole other episode. First, I want to mention about the movie that so much of it is told in reflection old Rose looking back. Note, of course, that it's old Rose, the view from the end of life, from the later years. But as she tells the story and her memories come to life in the movie, the guy who's conducting the deep dives to find the diamond, the heart of the ocean, who's been obsessed with Titanic and searching the wreckage, he says, Three years, I've thought of nothing except Titanic, but I never got it. I never let it in. Now, James Cameron wrote, directed, and produced the movie, and James Cameron was born with Saturn and Scorpio. But the Saturnian piece here, for any sign, is I never let it in. That's one of the quickest routes to reducing oneself to a bearable size. And I say it could be a whole new episode because one of the other books that I read recently, the one that crossed the finish line after ancient astrology, was Jung's A History of Modern Psychology. And in it, he has a whole section describing the dynamics of walling off the psyche, which is one of the ways we can deal with life through Saturn. Just put up a wall, not let it in. There are, of course, consequences for heading in that direction, a lot of which we see in the world, a lot that you have heard me talking about in this episode. To draw this episode to a close, I want to go back to Jung and my interest in his interest in the Aquarian Age, the Age of Saturn, as he imagined the potential of an incoming Aquarian age, he felt that to reckon with the age of Aquarius, 
or we could just call it Pluto entering Aquarius, it would require contending with the tension of opposites, which first of all requires looking at things through opposites. And in this case, it's the opposition between the light and the dark, the Leo-Aquarius axis. The sun out in summer, archetypally speaking, with Aquarius being that sign of heading out of the dark, with the sun representing gold, and Saturn being the metal of lead. This is behind Jung's studies of alchemy, with alchemy, of course, being the work of transforming lead into gold. And this seems to be connected to that nature of Saturn I was talking about earlier, the opposition inherent within Saturn, that his nature is to endure at the same time that he's associated with the destructive life force. That very dynamic, that very struggle could be what's behind many depressive moods and melancholy feelings. It seems to be part of the process required to transform the leaden experience of Saturn into gold. And note how the later years of life are often referred to as the golden years. And so there we have another strange thing with Saturn, where he looks back to the golden age, but the aim ahead toward the future might just be toward the golden years. You know, the golden girls. And it's that dilemma that I want to end on. Looking back to the golden age or looking ahead to the golden years. Grandpa, tell me about the good old days. Because that's really one of the points of the winter solstice. It's that point of deepest descent before beginning to rise again. It's reflecting on what's been and looking ahead to what will be. And if you notice, the opposites just appear at this time of year. They're always around, but there's as much rocking around the Christmas tree energy in Christmas music as there is melancholy. The silent night. Last Christmas. Blue Christmas. A lot of the melancholy songs encourage slowing down and reflecting. There's as much joy to the world as there is in the bleak midwinter. And it seems to be worth it, facing the struggles that Saturn presents. In the words of Thomas More, Saturn locates identity deeply in the soul rather than on the surface of personality. Identity is felt as one's soul finding its weight and measure. We know who we are because we have uncovered the stuff of which we are made. And on that note, this is Sean Nygaard. Thank you for listening to Saturn and Soul. If you're interested in a reading to talk about Saturn and explore your Saturn and your chart, you can find me on the web at imagineastrology.com. Until next time, wishing everyone a joyful or melancholic or 
a joyful and melancholic winter solstice. And remember, survival is insufficient. Imagine that.